Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome to our time of study in God's Word. This is study number 32 through this series to the book of Revelation. And the title of our study today is The Woman, the Child, and the Dragon. And today we're going to look at Revelation 12, 1 through 6. Would you please join me now in prayer? Lord, we give thanks first for the finished and sufficient work of Christ on behalf, on, on our behalf, without which we would have no access to you. No, no power, no power through the Holy Spirit to be indwelt by you, equipped by you, to be convicted of the truth of Scripture. So, Lord, I pray today that you would open eyes and ears and hearts to the truth that we live in a, in a real spiritual war. There's a war for the souls of men. And, Lord, you are Lord over all of it. You're the only one who saves. You're the only one through Christ that can satisfy. You're the only one through the, through the Word and by the Spirit that can glorify your people, that can cause them to grow to be like you. You're the only one who will return to take back your people, the church, in your timing and for your glory. So, Lord, we give thanks as we look at this challenging text today. I pray, I pray, Lord, for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, for the help of your Spirit as I teach it, and that you would be honored and glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're, we're going to look at Revelation 12, 1 through 6 today. And hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us through this great text today. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a red, great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for one thousand 260 days. One of the stock stories of ancient myth mythology is that of the evil usurper who is doomed to be slain by a royal prince yet to be born. The version of the story that would have been most familiar to John's readers concerned the birth of Apollo. When his mother Leto became pregnant, Python the dragon sought to slay her to keep the son of Zeus from being born. Zeus, the chief god, carried Leto on winds to a secret island so as to hide the expectant mother. And finally Apollo was born, and four days later he slew the evil dragon. The Apostle John would have known this popular story as he wrote the twelfth chapter of Revelation 
In fact, some scholars suggest that John was copying mythology. And yet John's perspective is that in the, is the history of Christ is the real history of our world. Pagan mythology partly consists of Satan's counterfeits of the true story of Christ in order to pervert the gospel for his own purposes. Satan, John says, is the real dragon whose defeat is assured by God's promised son, and the dragon's attempt first to stop the Messiah's birth and then to persecute the Messiah's people, in fact, constitutes the story of the world. Chapter 12 begins the second half of Revelation. The first half provided the general overviews of history, and there we learned about the world's opposition to the gospel, Christ's judgment on the nations, and our calling to persevere in faith. The second half of Revelation hones in on the chief characters and the spiritual warfare taking, behind, taking place behind the scenes. The primary enemy is Satan, the dragon, and he is aided by two beasts, the harlot Babylon and, and the people who bear the mark of the beast. And one by one, these figures are introduced in chapters 12 through 15. And one by one, there is their defeat and judgment is shown in chapters 16 through 20. Located as it is in the center of the book, Revelation 12 is considered by many scholars as a central and the key vision. It depicts the decisive conflict between the church, the devil, and the royal child, Jesus Christ. You see, here is provided the background of spiritual conflict behind Jesus' words of great assurance, given on the night before his arrest, on the, or before yeah, his victory on the cross, excuse me. John 16, 33 says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, in reading Revelation, we need to remember that the chapter of divisions were not originally included. And so we need to hear the first half of the book, concluding with the vision of the opening of God's temple to reveal the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the Christian's access into the presence of God, accompanied with thunder and lightning and hail. In fact, as the book was being read aloud to its first recipients, there will likely have been a pause. And so with the previous vision still lingering in the air, John continues saying this, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, Revelation 12.1 says. Now the previous visions, having concluded with heaven open, this new vision begins... With a, with, a, with a scene of the glorious church, John makes it clear that this is not an actual woman, but an actual symbol, referring to her as a sign that he saw in heaven. Roman Catholics argue that this figure here depicts the Virgin Mary in her mediatorial glory. But the details of the story do not fit Mary's story, and this woman's children include all who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus, Revelation 12, 17 says. The woman is the covenant community of God's faithful people through whom God brought his son, the long-promised Savior, into the world. And she includes Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, the people of God living both before and after Christ's coming. And thus this glorious woman not only gives birth to the Messiah, but continues having children after his ascension. Paul spoke of spiritual Jerusalem as our mother in Galatians 4.26. Scott Coventer spoke with reverence of Mother Cook, the church, 
as the bride of Christ and the mother in whose nursery God's children are raised. Now this this very vision puts emphasis on the radiant glory of the faithful church as God sees her according to his own will and his eternal purpose. Revelation 12.1 says, She is clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Wrapped in the sun, she is glorious, bearing the light of God with the moon under her feet. She exercises spiritual authority. The crown of stars on her head is a laurel of victory in Christ. And as a pregnant mother, she has a task of bringing Christ into the world. The sun, the moon, and the stars connect her with God's covenant people. In Joseph's vision in Genesis 37, 9-11, the sun was his father Jacob, the moon was his mother Rachel, and the stars were the sons who became the twelve tribes of Israel. In fact, already in Revelation, we have seen stars depicting the angels of the churches in Revelation 1.20 and the new Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. And so if we can imagine this radiant woman shining in the heavens, we are encouraged to realize that she depicts us, the Christian church, as God sees us in light of Christ's redemptive work. William Henderson says this, on earth, this church may appear very insignificant and open to scorn and ridicule. But from the aspect of heaven, the same church is all glorious. All that heaven can contribute of glory and of splendor is lavished upon her. Isaiah 62 verse 5 proclaims to the covenant people and thus, for, thus to each member in it, that as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. A wife is never more beautiful and precious to her husband than when she is carrying his child. And nothing so stirs up manly protectiveness as the image of his pregnant wife. <clears throat> you see, God, he likewise speaks of his protective watch over his holy daughter Zion. Zechariah 2.8 declares that he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. In a world scarred by mankind's fall into sin, childbearing always involves painful travail. And so it is for the covenant mother, she was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth, Revelation 12, 2 says. This statement summarizes the entire history of Israel with all of her travails until finally the long-promised Messiah was born. Douglas Kelly says this, Old Testament Israel was pregnant with Christ for thousands of years. Israel was being used as a womb from which the Messiah would be born. Isaiah 26, verse 17 says, Like a pregnant woman who rides and cries out in her pains when she is near to giving birth, so we were because of you, O Lord. This vision of the heavenly woman reminds us of the mission of the church. She is clothed in light, and we are to shine forth with the light of the word of God. She is holy, and we are to be conformed not to the world, but to the character of our Lord. Her mission is to deliver Christ. And our mission is to proclaim him as Lord and Savior. The church does not exist to provide a variety of human services to the world, but to cause Christ to be born in sinners' hearts so they may be saved. The church is the, is the mother to God's covenant children, and we are to raise them in the nurture and the abnomition of the Lord. These were travails for Israel before Christ was born, and there are afflictions for the church in our present times today. But we are precious to God, radiant in his redemptive purpose. And he is the strong, the loving, and the faithful father 
who will keep the mother of all of his children safe. One of Revelation's purposes is to give explanations for what Christians experience throughout history. The first half of the book dealt with various historical realities that explain the, the challenges that the church will experience. They include our own sin and failure in chapters 2 through 3, Christ's judgment on the nations to protect the church, chapters 6 through 7, and further judgments designed to persuade sinners of their need to repent, chapters 8 through 9. These factors, Christ's discipline, Christ's protection, and Christ's call to repentance, together with believers' prayers in Revelation 8, 3 through 5, explain the upheavals that dominate world history. And now in Revelation 12, it presents what may be regarded as history's primary explanation, a great spiritual conflict raging behind the scenes. Verse 3 presents a mighty and a terrible monster at war with Christ when it says this, And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon. Beneath all the action on the surface of history is a great spiritual enemy seeking to destroy the church. John identifies him in verse 9 as that great serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Now, many people today dismiss the devil as a myth of fantasy, but you cannot take the Bible seriously without believing in this personal and this powerful spirit, this fallen archangel who is the enemy of Christ and his church. Nor can you make any real sense of the world as it is without accounting for him. The devil first appears in the Bible as a serpent who deceived and who tempted Adam and Eve into breaking the command of God, plunging our human race into sin, Genesis 3, 1 through 6 says. And in fact, in cursing him, God promised warfare between Satan's servants and the children of the woman in Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The woman's offspring was primarily Christ, but in him it includes the entire church of the Old and the New Covenants. In fact, the rest of history features the conflict between the devil and God's covenant people centered on opposition to himself. God says in Genesis 3.15, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, John's description of Satan as a great dragon not only connects back to the serpent of the garden, but it also incorporates the mythology dragon imagery that symbolized chaos and evil throughout the ancient world. The Old Testament often personified evil as a dragon or a sea monster. Isaiah looked back on God's defeat of Pharaoh in the Exodus on these terms. In Isaiah 51.9, it says, Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? He spoke of God's judgment on Assyria, saying he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Behind the mythical dragons of the ancient world is a real dragon, the devil. Here is a true monster who lurks in history, whom Peter describes in 1 Peter 5.8 as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. John sees Satan as a great red dragon, the color evidently standing for bloodshed and murder. John 8.44 says he was a murderer from the very beginning. The dragon is further seen with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head, seven diadems, Revelation 12.3 says. In ancient mythology, the many-headed dragon seems impossible to defeat. Now, likewise, Satan has heads and fangs in many places of worldly influence, and he acts with shocking dexterity. 
to thwart him in one area is to find him attacking in another. In fact, along with the seven heads are the seven horns. And in the Bible, horns symbolize strength, and the ten horns speak of the strength of evil in this world and under the devil's power. Daniel's fourth and most terrible beast has ten horns. And that connection associates these horns with an earthly kingdom under the control of Satan. In fact, reinforcing this idea are the seven diadems on his head, Revelation 12.3 says. These are not the laurel crown of victory worn by the woman, but are the crowns of his usurped earthly dominion. And Paul thus describes Satan as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2 says. You see, Satan does not serve, he only rules. His crowns are the iron crowns of tyranny. J.K. Beale writes that the diadems represent the devil's false claims of sovereign, universal authority in opposition to the true king of kings, who also wears many diadems. Satan longs to hear the crown him with many crowns sung to his glory rather than to Christ's glory. Paul Garner describes Satan as the, the evil angelic guide for corrupt kings, nations, and kingdoms. This would include the Roman Empire and its Caesars, who wanted to be worshipped as God, as well as more modern examples that, that often come in the form of humanistic societies and governments who treat God and his word and his people with disdain, and they persecute him. John's told that the dragon's tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, Revelation 12.4 says. And now many readers jump to the conclusion that this refers to Satan leading a host of angels into heaven in rebellion against God. It is more likely that this vision symbolizes the arrogant aims of his warfare on earth against the church, because this same language was used in Daniel 8.10 of Antisius Epiphanes, the great persecutor of the Jews. And the point seems to be that Satan intends for his malicious actions on earth to do damage in heaven. Only a vast monster could swing his tail and knock stars from the sky. The dragon attacks God's order and rule. He assaults heaven itself, symbolized by the effect on the heavenly bodies. The dragon especially remembers God's promise that the child of the woman would crush his head, Genesis 3.15 tells us. And therefore, this vision paints a gruesome picture of a mother about to give birth, and there with her is the dragon with the seven heads, lurking so as to attack the child when he's born. Revelation 12, 4 says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This, too, is a story of the Old Testament, because immediately after receiving the curse of enmity with the woman and her child, Satan sought to cut off the line. First, he incited Cain to kill his godly brother Abel in Genesis 4, 8. And later, when Israel went into Egypt, Satan led Pharaoh in order that all the male sons would be killed as soon as they left the womb in Exodus 1, 8-16. Satan entered the hearts of King Saul with murderous designs for David, through whom the true king would be born. And Babylon, Satan conspired through evil Haman to wipe out the Israelite community in Esther 3.15, only to be thwarted through the resourcefulness of Queen Esther whom God placed near the Persian king. And finally, when the wise men came to King Herod, asking about the royal child who had been born, Herod sent soldiers to Bethlehem to slay every male 
child up to two years old, Matthew 2.16 says, All through biblical history, Satan has raged with a murderous passion focused on one object, to destroy the promised Savior before the Savior could put an end to Satan's dominion of evil. And now the third figure here is introduced in the vision, and this is the all-important Savior. Revelation 12.5 says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And true fulfillment of the ancient myths that reflect his coming, Jesus Christ is a prophesied son who is to come. As 1 John 3.8 puts it, to destroy the works of the devil. In fact, in describing Christ, John alludes to Psalm 2, which says that although the nations rage against God's anointed one, God enthrones his son and grants him possession of the nations. Psalm 2.9 says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel, God declares. And echoing this language, the woman who bears a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, Revelation 12.5 says, You see, the nations belong to Christ as the field of his gospel harvest. We either submit adoringly to him as Lord and Savior, or we fall under under the wrath of his judgment. And moreover, his rod protects the church as a shepherd defends his flock against the wild beasts of prey. So Christ, at his return, strikes the nation which oppress and persecute the church. I mentioned earlier the biblical history of Satan's attempt to destroy the seed that would become Jesus Christ. When these efforts failed, Satan used Judas Istiocrat to portray Jesus. And then he manipulated the Jewish leaders and the Roman governor into judicial atrocity of Jesus' crucifixion. And finally, the dragon had slain the prince. And yet when Jesus cried, it is finished, and gave up the spirit to the Father, John 19.30 tells us, his atoning sacrifice had struck the deadly blow against Satan's tyrannical reign of sin. In John's vision, the woman's child was caught up to God and to his throne, Revelation 12.5 says, at the very cusp of Satan's apparent triumph, but Jesus lying dead in the grave, God raised his son from Satan's clutches and exalted him in power, causing the devil's strategy to collapse in defeat. John is going to elaborate on the further details of this holy war as this chapter continues. But the opening vision connects us with by telling us what happens to this woman after her child was born and taken up safely to the throne of God. Revelation 12:6 says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, into which she is being nourished for 1,260 days. This final verse makes three applications for us today. The first is that Christians must not think of this present world as home. For now is the time of our wilderness journey. This life is a time of testing and preparation for our true home when Christ returns. The world is under the devil's power. It's, it's hostile to true Christians. John fifteen nineteen says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Christians must therefore be spiritually strong and biblically wary. For behold, earthly opposition and moral perversity stand spiritual forces of evil, led by Satan himself. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And knowing this, we should not wage war in an earthly manner, relying on things such as wealth, power, or political influence. Our spiritual warfare relies on the spiritual resources of prayer, God's word, and holy lives. In such a conflict, our calling from God is not to overthrow the spiritual powers of darkness, for we are not the slayers of the dragon. Rather, we're to stand against him. We are to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm, Ephesians 6.13 says. And this means that we must not accommodate worldly demands or practices, knowing that to compromise with the world and its sin is to advance the cause of the enemy, the devil. Everything in the world that is contrary to God and his word, whether sexual immorality, secularist ideology, or consumer idolatry, is a weapon forged by Satan to afflict mankind and oppose Christ in the church. When pressed to conform to worldly ways, we should see the devil's hand at work and resolutely refuse to aid and abed the enemy of our king. In the first battle, Manassas, the Confederate forces were being pushed off the field when the Brigadier General Thomas Jackson, he arrived with his 1st Virginia Brigade. Jackson calmly ordered his regiments and he stood his ground. Some of the other brigades were fleeting when one of their leaders saw Jackson standing firm. In fact, he shouted, there stands Jackson like a stone wall. That is how the famous general received his name, Stonewall Jackson. Seeing him, the others regained heart. They took up solid positions behind Jackson, and the Union advanced was broken on the stone wall of resolute soldiers. Now, let me be clear. Whatever your view of the American Civil War, we can all admire the valor of Jackson's stance and recognize the significance of his actions. We are to do likewise in the spiritual battles of our day. Would he stand firm in the faith, refusing to embrace the standards and demands of a world governed by sin? You not only preserve yourself, but you strengthen other Christians, some of whom may be wavering in fear or doubts. Let other Christians see your faith in your life and say, There he stands like a stone wall. While you stand resolute in simple biblical faith and obedience, you honor the Lord, and you'll be greatly used by him in the strife for this desert world. Second, Revelation 12.6 emphasizes God's care for the woman who fled into the desert. Our text says <coughs> that the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God into which she is being nourished for 1,260 days. While we've seen that the 1,260 days or 42 months, it symbolizes a period of trial and a period of tribulation. This duration depicts the church days, a limited period prescribed by God during which Christians suffer affliction. But notice here as well that the wilderness is designed by God as a place of safety for the woman. And by stepping away from the ungodliness of the world, Christians are preserved from the ravages of sin. You see, God's wilderness is a place not only of safety, but also of his provision. God sent ravens to feed Elijah during his three-and-a-half-year exile at the brook, 1 Kings 17.6 says, And Israel was offended in the desert by the manna that God sent from heaven, Exodus 16 tells us. God now feeds the church with his word, making faith grow strong even in affliction, Deuteronomy 8.3 says. 
is in fact by his design that the wilderness would be a place where his covenant people would draw near to him in love, learning to rely on him completely for provision and for protection. Hosea 2, 14-15 says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her her vineyards. Now finally, we're to remember that our enemy is a defeated foe. An analogy is drawn between Christians in the church age, between Christ conquering death and resurrection, and his glorious second coming, and the situation of the Allied armies between the Normandy landings on D-Day in 1944 and the final end of the war on V-Day in 1945. When Eisenhower's armies landed in France on D-Day, there was no longer any doubt that World War II could be won. The decisive blow had been struck and the war only needed to be pursued with vigor for the enemy to collapse. The German generals were quite aware of this and many of them sought to bring about surrender as soon as possible. And yet the war raged on for many more months and many more bloody battles had to be fought. But those battles were fought by a victorious army who knew that their cause was won. What a difference this knowledge makes in our fight. The child of the woman has come. He has conquered sin and Satan on the cross and written, risen to heaven with his father. He has promised to return and end the war and total victory. And there are still battles, some of them bloody and painful, that God's people must fight. You and I must take hard stands that are going to prove costly. But we stand for Jesus, not only grateful for his love, but certain of his victory in the end. How inspiring it is in the midst of these trials, these failures, and the sorrows of this life to be shown the glorious vision of how God sees the church, clothed in glory and crowned with the stars. How how wondrous it is to realize that all of history consists of the struggle for the child to be born in his victory over the terrible dragon, and how solemn it is to realize that we have a place in this titanic struggle. And John explains in Revelation 12.11, which says, And we have conquered by him, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. See, Christ the Lamb is conquered by his blood. What significance we find for our lives if we stand firm in the faith and we rise to the challenge by the grace of God. You know, all around us today, we need to understand this as we wrap up this message, that we are in a war. But it is a war, as I've already said, that has been won. And that's the great, that's the great news. You know, when Paul says in, in Ephesians 6.10, you know, it's, it's by his mighty power, his mighty power is at work in us. That mighty power has united us to Christ. It gives us union with Christ. It's, it's joined at the very beginning of the teaching, the greatest teaching in the New Testament about spiritual warfare. The whole point, the whole reason that we are in a spiritual war is that we are belong to Christ. We belong to Christ. We are his and he is ours. We have union with him. We have friendship with him. We are sons and daughters of him, adopted through the blood of Christ. And he empowers us through the Holy Spirit to be on mission for his glory, to make disciples who make disciples for the glory of Christ. You know, Jesus' purpose and coming, he tells us in Luke 19.10, He came to seek and to save the lost. That was once you and I. 
We once were an enemy, were an enemy of God. But God, Paul says in Ephesians 2, being rich in mercy, he saved us by grace. That's not of ourselves. It's of Christ. It wasn't we who did the work. It was Christ. In the midst of our spiritual warfare, in the midst of the challenges of our day, we can take heart in this knowledge that it's not we ourselves who have saved us. Paul says in Romans 8, 31 through 39, it's, it's not us who holds us secure and fast. It's Christ down to the nanosecond. So the reality of this war that we're in is not only real, it's also very present. It's also very present. But God has not left us. He, In fact, Hebrews 13 verse 5 tells us he will never leave us nor forsake us. Because verse 8 of Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So you know what? All, all of the resources, the very treasure of Christ himself is at our disposal. And what that means, just as we wrap up here to today, is this. You don't have to rely on yourself in the midst of whatever you're going through, whatever circumstances, whatever trials, whatever affliction, whatever's going on in your life. You don't have to trust yourself. That's why 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5 tells us Christ is adequate. And Paul testifies in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 that the grace of God is sufficient for us. Down to the nanosecond, we are held secure. We are held fast by the grace of a sufficient Savior. That's why Paul can say that that great verse in Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not I who strengthen me. It's Christ who strengthens me. In the midst of the, the war, great war of our day, the war for the souls of men, there, are, there is no middle grounds. Either you are a child of God or you are a servant of Satan. There's no middle ground. And people today, they find that incredibly offensive, but it's also really true. Sadly, shockingly true. Paul tells the Corinthians that the God of this world blinds people's eyes to the truth. Why? Because again, he not only perverts, Satan not only perverts biblical truth, but he blinds people to it. Because he knows, he knows that if they know the truth and they see that he is the accuser of the brethren, that liar, the one who causes all the devastation in our world, in addition to us, being centered by nature and by choice. But if they see him as he really is, there's no way. Game, set, match. Here's the thing. It's already game, set, match, and over. It was over before it began. Satan thought, as I said earlier, he thought that he had Jesus right where he wanted him when he died. But up from the grave, he arose. We don't have a Savior who is dead 
and gone. We have a Savior who has resurrected from the grave. We have not only the forgiveness of sin, but we've been given new life in, in Christ. And so, come he may, come he may, Satan. But you know what? God is more powerful than Satan. All power and authority and honor and worship and glory belongs to the Lord alone. And this is why we can take, be encouraged today in the midst of all that's going on in our world. God is not surprised by it. He's not shocked by it. He's not defeated by it. He is sovereign. He is in control. And you know what? Here's the other thing to take courage from, to take heart from. God is not only sovereign, but he's also good. He designs situations in our lives, and he uses them in our lives for his glory. Genesis 50, 20 says, what, what he meant for evil, God turned around and used it for his good. James 1, 2 through 3 tells us to consider it pure joy, brothers, when you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and so let it have its perfect way in you. And so you see, that's good news. Nothing is surprised, nothing surprises God, and God, Romans 8, 28 tells us that he uses all things for our good to conform us into the image of Christ because you want to know what God's will is? You want to know what he's doing in your life? As a Christian, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 tells us that the will of God is our sanctification. That is our growth in Christ. So it's no wonder that the God of this world wants to blind the minds and the eyes and the ears of non-Christians. But that's our job as Christians. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, that we are ambassadors of God. We are to plead with people to be reconciled to God. And that's you today. Maybe you're not saved. I plead with you to believe in the merits and the person and the work of Christ on your behalf. Acts 16, 31 says it's very simple. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's interesting, in the early church even, that great verse, there's salvation in no other name but Christ alone in Acts 4.12. It was preached in the midst of persecution, in the midst because of spiritual warfare, because the church was advancing and many people were getting saved. So take courage, take heart, be encouraged today. If you are facing opposition for your faith, you do not stand alone. All of heaven, the, the host of heaven stand with you. The person of Christ stands with you. The saints who have been martyred stand with you. The Holy Spirit has promised that he will empower you because he indwells you to testify of Christ. So again, you don't have to rely on yourself. You don't have to trust yourself. But you do need to trust in the sufficiency of your Savior. God is good. That alone is, is, he alone is worthy to be praised for the help that he alone can provide. He is enough and he always will be. Let's pray. 
Father, in the midst of the challenges, in the midst of the spiritual warfare that we experience in, in all of life, you are enough for us. We thank you so much that we have union with you. It's by your mighty power that you, you have raised Jesus from the dead and you raise us from being spiritually dead to new life in you. So Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, that it's because of this that we have real unity with you, real and real unity with one another. Through our union with you, we can be friends with one another because we're friends with you. So Lord, help us to take heart, to be encouraged today. And most importantly, Lord, help us to look to you, to trust you, the author and the finish of our faith, Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.